you know, the more you zoom out on a person and look at their life over a decade or two decades, it's obvious they're not the same person. That's Dr. Benjamin Hardy, organizational psychologist and best-selling author. And I was doing nothing. I barely graduated high school. Like I had no evidence that I was going to get a PhD, have all sorts of knowledge. I couldn't even study in high school. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Dr. Ben Hardy to discuss how and why people change, the mindset needed to transform yourself, and the benefits of being hyper-focused on the future you want to create. And if you're serious about creating the future you want, you are required to make a shift in how you see things. Um, you're required to change the meaning and the narrative you have around what's happened in the past. And you've got to then become really honest with yourself and with everyone else that this is the future you genuinely want. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney podcast. Dr. Ben Hardy is a well-respected organizational psychologist, and he's written a number of extremely powerful, influential books, including Willpower Doesn't Work, and most recently, Personality Isn't Permanent, How to Break Free from Self-Limiting Beliefs and Rewrite Your Story. I asked Ben to elaborate on how his latest book came to be, and what readers can expect to learn within its pages. I wrote this book because I felt like there's just a lot of limiting perspectives that people have that stop them from being able to choose who they want to be. You know, there's just a lot of... A lot of either perspectives, narratives, uh, could be reasons, but people feel limited in who they can become. And so I just wanted to write a book that hopefully provided as much evidence as I could that people can change who they are <laughs> and that they already have. And I just wanted to give people control over who they become. And with the title of the book being Personality Isn't Permanent, how do you define personality? Personality is more surface level. Identity is more internal. Identity is a lot more fundamental. Identity is how you see and describe yourself, whereas personality is what's exhibited on the outside. Personality is a person's consistent attitudes and behaviors. So you see, you can if a person consistently shows up a certain way, that's that's generally their personality. And I know in the book you argue that the person that you were does not necessarily dictate the the type of person you become. But uh, how how do you demonstrate that you're actually living proof of that? I mean, I can demonstrate that I'm not the same person I was even a few years ago. You know, I've changed a lot of my habits even in the last couple of years and changed a lot of how I approach things, a lot of what I value. Obviously, from a bigger scale, you know, the more you zoom out on a person and look at their life over a decade or two decades, it's obvious they're not the same person. You know, uh, I grew up in a tough background, as I mentioned very bluntly in the book. I came from a background of trauma. Dad was a drug addict and I was doing nothing. I barely graduated high school. Like I had no evidence that I was going to get a PhD, have all sorts of knowledge. I couldn't even study in high school. But I think even on a smaller scale, you know, 90 days ago, I, I was making different decisions than I'm making right now. And I'm a lot clearer on my future now than I was 90 days ago. And so even, and my belief is, is that our view of our own future is the greatest indicator of who we are today. And so because my future is slightly different today than it was 90 days ago, I'm a different person than I was 90 days ago. And what, is, what does science generally say about just how people change over time? 
So there's a there was a famous study actually at Harvard called the Harvard Grant Study, and it followed 300 men for literally 80 years. But there's been that's called longitudinal research, and the more of the more longitudinal research that's coming out, where like the same population's been followed for like 70, 80 years, the more actually it shows how much people change over time, and also the more unpredictable the change can be. So like you for example, there are changes that are going to happen in a decade or two decades from now as far as who you are that you can't presently predict, you know, and some of those changes are going to be pretty big, you know, like, and, and it, that's, what's kind of cool. But there's also a lot of the research and more of my favorite research that I reference in the book comes from Daniel Gilbert. He's at Harvard and he basically studies how people view them, their former self 10 years back and also their future self 10 years into the future. And most people very much under predict how much they're going to change. Like just, you know, thinking about yourself or anyone listening there are probably things that you valued or cared about or invested a lot of time or energy into or decisions or habits that you had five or 10 years ago that honestly you just don't care about right now. Uh, and your future self is going to be the same. There's certain things that you're investing a lot of time, thought and energy into that in 10 years from now, you're not going to value. You're not going to care about. You're going to be focused on other things. And so Daniel Gilbert recommends you start thinking about what your future self would want today rather than assuming that what you want right now is what your future self is going to want. And there's something interesting you mentioned in the book that, that the more ev emotionally evolved that one becomes, the less defined they are by their past and the less constrained they are by their circumstances. Why emotionally evolved? Because usually the meaning we give to events is based on the emotions we experienced during those events. So, for example, me as an 11-year-old boy, you know, my parents get divorced. I watch my dad become a drug addict. If I'm not emotionally able to handle that, then I'm going to be defined in a negative way by that experience. And I'm going to hold on to that negative meaning. And that's going to impact my identity. So I'm going to see myself as a loser. And that's essentially what was going on throughout high school. Which And so emotional development means you're willing to deal with your emotions. You're willing to face them. You're willing to handle them. And you become what's called psychologically flexible. You learn how to actually go back and handle your emotions and also handle the emotions of the moment. You know, if you're dealing with I know people who are listening to this are lawyers, you know, so you've got to handle your emotions and become developed emotionally or else you're going to get blocked by a lot of life. You know, something stressful is going to happen and you're just going to cave. And so the more emotionally developed you are, the more you can actually frame the meaning of what's going on. You can see this as this is happening for me. I can use this. What's the best way to approach this rather than just this is too overwhelming. I'm just not going to deal with it. I'm going to space out, you know. And so, yeah, you have to become very emotionally developed if you want to move forward as a person. And that's about one of the biggest indicators of how far you can go as a person. And if you don't, then you're probably stuck in the past because of some hard experiences that you haven't emotionally dealt with. And you bust a lot of myths in regards to personality. And you actually mentioned that the personality is an effect and not a cause. But what are some of those myths and, and really what's kind of like the truth around, you know, how malleable this is? Uh, I think it's very malleable. Obviously, like most research in psychology is very conservative about how much a person's personality can change. And my beliefs about that, so like people's personality will change abundantly over time, but over a short period of time, let's just say six months, a year, psychologists are going to be pretty dang conservative about how much you can change yourself. And my belief is, is that most people are not living hyper effectively. They're not super clear on their future self. They're not actually stepping out of their comfort zone, learning new things, trying new things. Most people are living kind of day to day. And you got to realize that most research in psychology is based on typical populations, you know, people who are in the middle of the mean. Most of your listeners are probably more on the outlier side of things. And so they're far more likely to make changes. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's hugely malleable. And for the example that you give, let's say for the ones that drive more change in the short term, in like a six month period, in a year and so on, what what are they doing differently? Well, they're they're learning a lot. 
they have very clear goals. They're actually like making progress towards those goals. They're investing in huge education. They're seeking new experiences. They're putting themselves in new environments. You know, they're actively reframing former experiences because the past is always viewed from the present, from the context of the present. And so when I gain new information, when I read a new book or when I have a new conversation, it allows me to reinform everything I know about life, including my past. And so I'm constantly updating and improving how I see my past. And I'm constantly clarifying what I do for my future. There's processes that successful people go through where they're actually making really big progress on a monthly or on a quarterly basis, and they're measuring that progress. And so I think if you have specific goals, and there's a lot of researchers on this, if you have specific goals to improve yourself in certain ways, and you're actually like regularly measuring and reporting those goals to other people, and you've got accountability around that, you can make huge change. You can go from someone who's not very good with people or someone who's really shy to someone who's excellent at speaking with people who's excellent in a room you can go from someone who's not that great at writing and communicating to someone who's excellent if you got really good goals you're invested in it you're educating yourself on it and you're regularly reporting and measuring your progress it, it seems like goals are tremendously important in all this and, and just having clarity around goals and clarity around purpose i remember the story you mentioned i think that andre norman right it just kind of the, how his life you know, changed throughout and, and really how his goals changed if you could speak to that so there's like two major concepts that drive my thinking on this. One is called teleology and philosophy. And basically teleology and philosophy, and I, and I will get to Andre because his story really explains it. But in philosophy, there's a concept called teleology. And basically what it means is that everything we do is to create an end. You know, so like right now you and I are having a conversation. We came to this conversation because we're both trying to produce a result. You know, maybe individually the results are slightly differently, but the one result is for us to have a conversation and to produce a podcast. The people who are listening to this are listening to this because they're trying to create a result, which is listen to this podcast and either entertain themselves or learn. So every behavior that we do, whether it's go to the bathroom, go to the grocery store, hang out with friends, is to create an outcome. And so all behavior is goal-driven. And in psychology, the concept is called prospection. And basically what it means is, is that as human beings, the thing that makes us conscious versus plants and animals is that we can imagine different future scenarios and we can make decisions in the present based on what we think is going to happen in the future. Most plants and animals, you know, and other like, I guess you could call it lower intelligent beings are reacting to external stimuli. Whereas we can make decisions based on the future that we want. That's called prospection. Everything we do as people is based on the future we see for ourselves. And so I think goals are really important, even if you don't call them goals. And our identity is based on the future that we see for ourselves. And so Andre Norman is a friend of mine. He's actually in a, several groups that I'm a part of, but he's someone who really clarifies this perspective. So he grew up in the hood of Boston and basically was just a troublemaker, you know? Um, but he, he had one teacher that really cared about him and she was his band teacher and she got him interested in playing the trumpet. And because she was nice to him, he was like reciprocal. He went to her class and because he was actually going to class and investing in it, he actually started enjoying the trumpet and that became a part of his future. Like he actually saw the trumpet as being something that he would love to see himself doing. And so it became a part of his identity. And whatever you see for your future is what's driving your identity. Well, when he made it to junior high, his new high school friends or junior high friends, I'm not sure if it was high school or junior high, but they told him, you know, he has to throw away the trumpet. And so when he threw away his trumpet, that became no longer a part of his future. Therefore, it was no longer a part of his identity. And as a result, he no longer felt the need to go to school because he no longer had a purpose for doing that. And so his goal then shifted. And it was just to be fully like the top dog among his friends. And that decision ultimately landed him in prison at age 18. And, you know, the story goes forward. He's in prison. He wants to be the top guy in prison. And so whatever your view of your future is and whatever goal you're pursuing, that's the thing driving your identity, which drives your behavior, which ultimately becomes your personality because your consistent behavior is your personality. 
And ultimately, the cool part about Andre's story is that he ultimately had like a coming to God moment where he was right at the end. You know, he was he was about to kill several people and he would have been in prison even to this day. But ultimately, he was able to question the validity of the goals that he was pursuing. And he then decided he was going to go to college. And so he made Harvard his vision, his goal. And just like the trumpet, he now had a new future, you know, and so Harvard became the future that he then built his life around. And it took him eight years to get out of prison, but he was able to filter all of his decisions through Harvard now, getting into Harvard. So he started studying law, started like learning how to read, getting therapy, speaking with mentors, and like ultimately getting away from the losers. One of the things that's interesting about his story, which I didn't even tell in the book, but I've recently read his book, is that when he first told his criminal friends, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to go to Harvard. I'm not going to hang out with you guys anymore. They all laughed at him. They all just said, you're crazy. You can't do that. You know, and that's exactly what any, any group says, you know, often. Um, but they just they didn't believe him. And so he had to stop being around them and he had to start surrounding himself with people who supported his future. But ultimately, all along the way, Andre's goal is the thing that shaped his identity and his behavior. Initially, it was to play the trumpet. Then it was to fit in with his friends. Then it was to be the top dog in prison. And then it was to get into Harvard. And he was able to do all those things. And now, if you were to talk to Andre, he has different goals. You know, he's trying to be a successful speaker and author and things like that. And so that's the thing driving his identity. And so whatever you're going for in your life, that's the thing driving your identity and your behavior. So as, as you mentioned, it seems like goals are so fundamental to identity. But it's also interesting that you, you dived into where goals actually come from, you know, to the actual sources of goals. I think you mentioned like exposure, desire, and confidence because you know, different people have different goals. But you really kind of explored even the root of where goals originate from. Yeah. I mean, the question is, is because we all project different futures and we then commit our present to whatever those futures are, the question is, well, where do those futures come from? You know, those are the source of our goals, what we've been exposed to, you know, what we believe in or what we want or value, and then what we believe we can accomplish. And that became really clear to me, like when I got three foster kids, three foster kids from the middle of nowhere, they've got no exposure to a lot of things, you know, so like their goals were probably to sit and watch TV all day, you know, because that was like the best that 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 was all they were aware of. And in the book, I talk about Charlie Trotter, who I love the Charlie Trotter story because it's important for all of us. But Charlie Trotter was a famous chef. Oprah recommended his restaurant. He lived in Chicago, was one of the top fine dining restaurants, I think, in the 90s. And he would regularly bring impoverished kids into his restaurant to expose them to something amazing. He would give them a full-scale fine dining meal for free. And the reason he was doing it was to show them that there was a new possible reality out there, way beyond probably what they had previously imagined. And so that's why I think it's important to have regular peak experiences, to have new opportunities, to put yourself in new situations, to see new realities. Because what you're currently imagining for your future is based on what you're aware of. And I think that's another reason to learn a lot of things. Read a lot of books, be around different interesting people, have new experiences, because then your perspective of what's possible becomes altered. I think the other important aspect of goals is just to question your current desires. You know, like right now, I know that I want things that my former self didn't want. I'm a lot more interested just, you know, openly about my longevity, my health, and also my finances, way more interested in in that than I was five years ago. And so the the goals that I have as far as for my money and for my health, and even for my family with five kids, five years ago, I didn't have five kids. And so my goals and the things I value and desire and want are very different from what I was wanting and valuing five years ago. And I also know that in five years from now, my values may be slightly adjusted and the things that I really want and care about. And so I've got to think about that. Like, what would my future self want? Because maybe what I want right now is actually going to hurt my future self. 
And so those are where our goals come from. It seems like you're mentioning when you're looking at like your past, present, and future, like it's almost like looking at this as if they're different people, right? So it, it, at different stages of your evolution. Yeah, I think that's the best way to look at it. It's really good. Like there's a really good quote from Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway was a famous novelist, but he basically said that it, you know, true nobility is not being superior to your fellow man. True nobility is about being superior to your former self. It's important to like look, look back on where you were. So Dan Sullivan calls it the gain and the gap, you know, measuring the gain, seeing how much progress you've made in the last 90 days or in the last year. And it's really important to recognize that you're not the same person you were in the past. If the current version of you was put in former situations that you were in, you would probably do things differently. I know I would handle the situation differently if I was put in former situations. And I think it's when it comes to your past, it's important to be empathetic. It's important to be compassionate towards your former self and recognize you don't have to be you don't have to be the same person, but you also don't have to be angry at your former self. Instead, you can actually just be understanding that they were coming from a certain place, they were in a different situation. And now you now know things that they didn't know, and you can do things differently as a result. I think it's really just important to realize we're different people. I mean, I, I myself am in a totally different place. You are too. I mean, you're where you're at right now, you're on a different starting point than you were three years ago. You know, you're on a different starting point. You've got different knowledge, different perspectives. And so everything about your situation, if you were just to take it as a whole, is different from where you were at three years ago as a person. And we talk about accelerating learning, you know, and, and accelerating really growth because, you know, I mean, who, who doesn't want to grow? And I think, you know, most commonly what everyone always says, anytime there's an interview taking place or a job interview that you ask them what they want and they say, I want to grow and I want to get outside of my comfort zone. So it seems like we do need to embrace uncertainty. But why do so many people struggle with that? There's a really good quote. I forget what her name was. She was a famous psychologist, but she said basically that most people prefer the certainty of misery over the misery of uncertainty. So like most people prefer the certainty of misery. Most people would prefer a future that's certain, even if it's a future that they don't love, rather than dealing with the misery of uncertainty, because uncertainty is difficult to deal with. That, that, that goes straight back to emotional development. Not being clear 100% on how things are going to turn out creates some form of anxiety. But, but I mean, if you have confidence, and as you build your confidence in uh, what I would call flexibility, and as you have an increasingly high quality network and also you know, you have confidence from past experiences and successes, you get better and better at dealing with uncertainty. And so uncertainty is essential because your future self, you know, if you're pursuing big goals or if you're pursuing a big future, obviously between you and there is uncertainty because you've never actually done it. But you have to get good with that because that's where freedom is. You either have uncertainty and freedom or you have certainty and no options. And one other, one other thought on that comes from Ellen Langer. Ellen Langer is a Harvard psychologist. And she basically said that if you want to make choices, you have to embrace uncertainty. Whereas if you don't want to make choices, then you, where choices are, there's always some form of uncertainty. So if you want someone who's making choices and has freedom in your life, uncertainty is part of the equation. And you just got to get better at dealing with it. One of the things you mentioned in the book, that the importance of transforming your trauma. So how, how do you define trauma as you reference it in the book? I would have to like think, I, I don't know if I've fully defined it for myself, at least in the last few months, but really how I see it is, is it's any negative experience that impacts your identity. So it's any negative experience. It could be big or small. You know, it could be going to war. It could be being told you're bad at math or mad at drawing, you know, bad at drawing, but it's any experience that is usually highly emotional and due to the emotions you experience, you create negative meaning, which impacts your identity. You know, so if someone tells you you're bad at math or if you fail a math test and it just sucks, you feel terrible, 
And then you're like, I can't do this. That's trauma. Ultimately, what trauma does is it shatters any form of imagination or hope towards the future. So again, because it eliminates your view of the future, then all of a sudden your identity becomes very small because now you don't have a future in that area. You know, So if you get cheated on or something in a relationship and, and then you define it in some negative way, because a lot of it's really about the meaning you give to it. And the meaning comes because of how emotionally painful it was. But you gave some meaning that neg- negatively shapes how you see yourself and it, it diminishes your future. And then you become defined negatively by some past experience where you're just like, yeah, this happened. And so therefore I'm stuck as a result. And so all of it has to do with the interpretation you gave to an event. I was just going to say, because it seems like it's less about the event itself and more about the story that we tell ourselves about that event. It's about the story we tell. And usually it's, it's based on the initial reaction we have. So there's a quote from Adam Grant, who's a really cool psychologist. And he said that wisdom is not believing everything you think and emotional intelligence is not internalizing everything you feel. And so usually we all have initial reactions to experiences, you know, like if you have some, if something bad happens or something shocking happens, you have an experience, you, you know, emotionally, you may be set off, you might be, but the idea is, is that you don't create some negative meaning about yourself and the world because of that. Instead, you take a step back, you know, it's called emotional regulation. You might need a journal, have some conversations, but ultimately you frame it in a positive way or you frame it in a constructive way so that you can use it rather than that your life's ruined because of this thing. So it's all about the meaning and the interpretation you give to it. And the cool part about reframing traumas is that you can go back and reframe the meanings of former experiences. Rather than it being a bad thing, you can choose to frame it as this was a good thing. And I know you talk about this, uh, this, this almost like this personal narrative, but I know you mentioned journaling, but what are some other ways to almost like proactively alter or, or change our memories? I mean, a lot of it has to do with, you know, coming up with a new version of the story, a new meaning, and then ultimately actively sharing that meaning. Because your identity in many ways, it comes, it, 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 a lot of it has to do with the story you tell about yourself, past, present, and future. And it's important to realize that the story you regularly tell about yourself is the way that you see yourself. And so if you take the time to actually look at former experiences and change the meaning of them, rather than viewing them as a negative, you actually look at all the positives that came from it. Then the next thing you would need to do is tell people the new version of that story. You know, tell people if next time someone talks to you about who you are and where you come from, rather than saying, this is where I am. And this is why I am the person I am. You actually frame it in a different way. You know, rather than my parents' divorce being this thing that really sucks and you know it was hard which is the story i had in high school it's now something that i'm grateful happened because of all the things that i've learned obviously the things my parents have learned and so it's just telling the new story so that that just becomes your new way of looking at it memory is very flexible i mean another another other things you can do are actually being in a safe environment and talking about it what's interesting about memory is is that when you bring up past experience you always integrate what's happening in the present And so like one of the things that people do to help you reframe trauma is, is they help you weave in aspects of the present because the present feels safe. You know, I feel safe with you right now. Maybe in the past I had an experience that didn't feel safe. And so I want to integrate aspects of my safe present into my past. Um, And that could just be, you know, bringing you into the equation, you know, I'm talking to Michael, you know, and uh, you know, we're watching a podcast. And so you just want to integrate aspects of, of comfort so that then the memory gets recoded as This is a safe memory. This is something you can talk about. This is something you're comfortable with. For many people, radical mindset shifts come from significant, often traumatic experiences. For others, the catalysts driving deep internal changes are less dramatic, but no less impactful. I asked Ben to explain what types of experiences most often drive us to change our behaviors. 
I think that the catalyst moment is when you really start to question your current future. Andre, he was at a decision point where he was about to do something where he literally questioned, this is going to impact my big future. And so as a result, it became real to him that he probably needed to change his goal. As for myself recently, like I've made some adjustments, as I mentioned, to my fitness and stuff, and even to my diet. A lot of it's because, you know, there's that quote that small hinges swing big doors. I've known as an example that some of my like decisions maybe aren't the best for my long-term future self. You know what I mean? But I've been procrastinating changing some of those things because I'm like, I'll still get there. But at some point you reach a point where you're like, if I keep this up, my future will be worse. And so the hinge point or the turning point is when you really get clear that like, if you stay on this path, you're going to regret the future you're creating. And if you're serious about creating the future you want, you're required to make a shift in how you see things. Um, You're required to change the meaning and the narrative you have around what's happened in the past. And you've got to then become really honest with yourself and with everyone else that this is the future you genuinely want. It's, It's really about finally committing to the future you want rather than pushing it off forever. You know, and I think that when people are in a trauma state, they feel justified pushing the future off. And so at some point or another, when you just, you reach that state where you're like, then you're required to change the narrative and the meaning about what's going on. All, all of this seems like just having this higher level of, of perhaps consciousness or awareness. And, and it seems simple, but you know, so few, few people do it, but just having clarity around what it is that you want, why you want what you want, what the purpose looks like, all of this. It almost seems like many avoid doing this exercise unless there is some sort of negative or painful event that takes place that almost drives them to have to do this. Yeah. Yeah. That's what Daniel Gilbert has found. You know, Daniel Gilbert's the Harvard psychologist who spent so much time studying this is he's found that people, they don't spend much time imagining their future self, you know, like, and when you start to do it and you actually start to actually like, you know, like when people who are investing money, when you're investing money and you're actually thinking big picture, then your future self becomes a normal part of your daily life. You're actually watching the evidence that your future keeps getting bigger. Like if your portfolio is getting better or your family's getting better, it starts to become a normal part of your life. But I would say for the majority of people, you know, it's that whole idea of urgent versus important. Most people are just stuck on the urgent and maybe they're still defined by negative traumas in their past that they haven't reframed. And so their identity is pretty small. Therefore their future is pretty small. And they're still kind of regretting former decisions rather than forgiving their former self and just moving forward and and maybe educating themselves, learning and improving and increasing their future. It's kind of funny, man. It's kind of crazy. But Gilbert really says most people think that who they are today is who they're going to be in the future. And I think when you realize that that's not true, um, that your future self will be different. And if you're not doing things that are smart right now, your future self is actually probably going to be worse. Your future self is going to be angry at you. (laughs) Then... That's why I just think it's really important to realize your future self's different and what you're doing right now is setting your future self up for either success or disaster. Then you can start really questioning your decisions. Of course, we have to talk about environment. I know you wrote an entire book about it, which I love. It's a phenomenal book. Willpower doesn't work. But how does environment or one's environment impact their personality? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) It's huge, man. I mean, I, I wrote Willpower Doesn't Work because of my younger brother is someone who I believe has more innate not really Nate, but he just has so much potential, you know? Um, But his life has always been one step forward, 10 steps backwards. And it's because he never, he was never active about surrounding himself with the right types of people. So one of my favorite quotes is that your input shapes your outlook, you know? And also there's a lot of research on hope and about how people with high hope, people who are actively making their lives better, 
they seek information, experiences, and people that increase their hope and optimism towards the future. Whereas people with low hope, they seek information and people who justify why their future isn't going to be better. And so um, your environment is huge, dude. It's so subtle. It's so subtle. I mean, I myself even, like I'm a huge sports fan, you know, loving the NBA bubble, but I realized that I was letting way too much in and it was not, and at the wrong times, and it was destroying my creativity. And so, you know, I've gotten back to like really listening to like the right types of stuff in the morning when I'm trying to be creative and all of a sudden my creativity and my mindset and my future gets a lot bigger and exciting and I'm back to like creativity. And so, yeah, your input shapes your outlook. You got to be really aware of the information and the people you're around the people you're with are going to shape your personality. You know, if you're an entrepreneur, you know, you're probably going to be around entrepreneurs. And if you want to be successful financially, you need to be around people who that's just their normal mindset. That's their goal. That's their values. So you got to be really aware of your environment. It, it is fully shaping who you are. I'm a big believer in taking care of your mental nutrition, particularly when it comes to the information that you consume as a leader. This can also include creating an environment conducive to making progress, whether it's surrounding yourself with other ambitious growth-minded people or shielding yourself from distractions and negativity. I asked Ben to explain on a concept he calls strategic ignorance and how leaders can put it into practice. Yeah, there's a lot of things that we are either informed about or know about that we don't need to know about. Um, once you get really committed to a certain future self, a lot of what's going on is ultimately a distraction. You know, various news channels, what the most famous celebrities are up to. I mean, there's so many things that you just want to be ignorant of just because you just certainly don't have the time. You know, you just, you shouldn't be aware of everything. And with our internet world now, we're aware of when there's a crime in another city across the country. And it's good to be global and good to know that stuff, but it actually creates fear as well. Like I live in a great community and if I'm constantly afraid because something happened 10 states away, you know what I mean? Then it creates some weird fear and it also just distracts you. You need to be smart enough to block off options. That's part of making decisions is removing options, removing decision fatigue. That's part of why I think being an entrepreneur is awesome as well. If you're like the visionary and the leader, you would need to hire people so that you don't need to be aware of every decision being made. Um, you can free your mind up to actually focus on the things that matter rather than having a thousand ping pong balls going off your head. And so Strategic ignorance is super important if you want to have high energy and clarity towards whatever you're trying to focus on. And if you're trying to do too many things at once, you're not going to be able to make good decisions. You're going to be in a state of decision fatigue, and it's ultimately going to stop you from taking steps forward. And I, I will echo that sentiment just because, I mean, every business leader that I've spoken with that stopped watching the news, they've reported they've got less anxiety, they're more creative, they've got more energy and so on. They're still up to speed with what's going on in the world, but now they're not hearing about, you know, the, the murder that happened somewhere in their city that day. I mean, because there's nothing they can necessarily do about that, but it was just feeding in so much fear and anxiety and just, you know, it wasn't helping them. I think it's crazy, man. I mean, in studying hope, because hope, hope feels like a weak concept, but hope is actually incredibly important. If you don't have hope for your future, like you literally won't take any action. And so it is interesting to study that people who have high hope, who are very adaptive, who are very like goal oriented, moving forward, have high accountability. They remove things from their life that hurt their hope, um, that hurt their optimism and excitement towards the future. And that would probably include most of the news channels, <laughs> probably a lot of social media as well. Anything you consume has a slight impact. And so if you're serious, you know, you want to create a better filter for what comes into your brain. 
I've always felt that one of the one of the best ways to achieve a goal, not just being clear about it and not just, you know, making it public and so on. But you mentioned the concept of forcing functions. So I, I didn't know this was the terminology for it, but I know a lot of people that are afraid to do this. But I tell people that if, if you're actually if you're 100 percent committed to something, doing this almost makes it a certainty. What, what, what is a how do you define a forcing function? Yeah. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. But uh, yeah, forcing function is essentially any it's it, it, any form of situational constraint that you put in place that forces you to take the action you want. It could be being involved in a collaboration, you know, where like your part of the process negatively impacts them. So working with other people is a forcing function, especially people you respect because your results impact them. Uh, other forcing function could be just a really short deadline. You know, that's a situational factor that forces you to create a result, being highly invested. So essentially it's just any, any factor that because it's there forces you to create the result you want. And you can do it in big and small ways. You know, like if you leave your cell phone at work and then you go home, like that's kind of a forcing function. You can't keep looking at it because you've left it at home. And so it's just creating situations and scenarios so that doing the right thing or doing what you want is the automatic response versus something you have to battle because of willpower. Like you want to eliminate willpower. You just want motivation to be easy because the situation makes it easy. And to continue the discussion on on environment, there's several quotes out there, like the the average of the you know the people that you surround yourself with. But how do you know who's best to surround yourself with, and, and how to change that? And I don't just mean like I think it's sometimes it's clear if somebody's an obvious negative influence, but more so from the standpoint of like good is the enemy of great. How do you know when it's time to essentially upgrade you know your network or your circle of the people that you surround yourself with? If you are really committed to a specific future self, you have to take very seriously the idea that what got you here won't get you there. I, I really appreciate what you're saying about good is the enemy to great. Like you have, you know, the 80-20 idea is really big that a few things are creating the results that you want and almost everything else is a distraction. And so I think you have to be really honest about what are like the few things that are really creating the results you want in your life and how can you go bigger on those things? And what are some of the other things that you're just justifying leaving in, which are honestly slowing your progress towards your future self? I recently had to remove myself from various networking groups that I'm a part of that my former self thought were a good idea. But after experience, I realized these are not the things that are helping me create the absolute best result. And so I uncommitted myself from those groups. And all of a sudden, I then had enormously more energy. The challenge is always from the standpoint is when, when you have, let's say, good people around you, right? It's a, even when we talk about, let's say, as, as business leaders, let's say you've got a good team. You've got people that are reliable. You've got people that are accountable, but you're plateauing, right? And you know that those people will never help you get to where you truly want to take that organization, right? They're not doing anything wrong. You know, they're not showing up late. They're not, you know, they're all off track or anything like that. It's just that it's not at, at the level at which you know you'll need to operate to win a championship. Yeah, that's big. You know, I like that statement. I think half of it is the problem of the entrepreneur and half of it's the team. Like if the entrepreneur is really clear on the result or just the person is really clear on the result and the team member is also clear on the result and they know they can't do it, then it's obvious that you just have to say, look, like this is where we got to go now. I think a lot of it though is, is that they haven't gotten the clarity on what their role is for the result. You know, so for example, I'm kind of in a state where I might have to ask myself the same question you're asking me. When I was launching this book, Personalized and Permanent, I did about 250 podcasts to launch it. And I had an amazing person on my team who got me on all of those podcasts. Well, it was good, got me some great results, but I'm now committed to a lot bigger results. And so as a result, we have to change our process. 
our process didn't get us the results that I'm wanting. They got me pretty good results, but now I want results that are 10x that. And so as a result, we need a different process. And so now we're trying to figure out that new process. And we're now all asking ourselves, can this person actually do this process? They were very comfortable with the former process, but, and so they're very clear on the new results and you got to give them a shot and, you know, at the new thing, um, because they did in, in this case, this person was very good getting me to this level. And, but now we need something different. And so I think you got to give people a shot, but at some point it becomes obvious, you know, it's like, if you can't create that result, we're going to need to find someone who can. And, and Ben, as a, as an organizational psychologist, what, you know, what are some of the things that you do to essentially stay on top, operate at peak state? Peak state and flow to me are very similar. And really what it's about is one, not trying to do too many things at once. In fact, flow requires that you're trying to produce one outcome at a time. You know, so for you and I, the outcome that we're trying to produce is to have an epic conversation. And one, you know, so right now, if I try to do anything else, even just to like quick a peek at like, did I get any you know, any text? That's me trying to get a different outcome. So like flow and peak state require trying to do one thing at a time. It's not that complex, but you're not going to be in a peak state if you're not in flow. And so it's trying to create one one outcome at a time, a lot of recovery. You know, I love the quote from Brian Tracy, where he essentially said, work is about quality time. It's about doing the few things that really matter that produce big results, whereas family is about quantity time. And I think there's a lot of research about what I would call psychological detachment from work. You know, there's a lot of research on this. You need to work probably less. You need to recover more and have more clarity on what are the few things that really matter and put your best energy and effort towards those few things and take lots of time to recover. And so for me, it's it's about having less goals, but when I'm actually working, I'm hyper-focused and I'm recovered and I'm doing the few things I know will create the biggest results. And a lot of it's recovery. And also having less goals, honestly. You know, really trying to go big on like one thing rather than being okay at five. That's how you get into a peak state. And that's how you have a lot more flow as you pursue less things, but you pursue a lot bigger and higher things that require you to be focused. Applying forcing functions gets you into a peak state of having deadlines, being really congruent with your future self and what you're doing. Also eliminating things, you know, eliminating things really enables peak state. You know, when I eliminated that one relationship and also when I recently eliminated an addiction that I had for a long time, I was, I would say fairly addicted, not totally addicted. It, it wasn't ruining my life, but to caffeine, you know, like I would just use caffeine, you know, and I, I mean, it's not like caffeine's a killer. My life was really normal, but for me, I could tell that it wasn't resonating with the future that I wanted. You know, everyone has different future selves, but that was something that was impacting me. Just like keeping myself in that networking group was creating decision fatigue. And so by eliminating, whether it be a habit or whether it be a relationship, those things free you up. And the more free you are towards the future you want, the more in flow you'll be because your life will be a lot more simple. And Ben, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? It's kind of about changing your game and also about changing the game. You know, like my game, the game I'm playing right now is very different from the game I was playing three or four years ago. You know, three or four years ago, I was trying to become a professional author. Now it's like, how do I get to the higher level? So I think you, hopefully being a game changer means that you're constantly playing a better and a different game than your former self and that your future self is the one driving that game. But I also think on like a, on a more macro level, you change the game by kind of knowing and anticipating or predicting where the future is and then setting the stage for kind of your group or your industry. I think also changing the conversation, you know, like one of the things that I've noticed after writing this book and really diving into the research on future self and all that stuff, 
I've noticed that a lot of people, like literally life coaches and stuff like that, like they're literally changing their coaching programs so that they're built around this whole future self idea. And that research has been around for a while. I just packaged it in a way that people could comprehend it. And so I feel like you don't want to just be in an industry, but you want to hopefully change that industry and hopefully make it better for those around you. And I think one, uh, one other aspect of that is, is not viewing your competition as competition, but being willing to hopefully improve their life as well. You know, like one of the things I did when I was writing at Medium is I, I discovered a strategy for getting hundreds of thousands of email subscribers. And I made that very blatant and obvious. I taught it to everyone so that they could do it as well. And it kind of changed the whole process by which people blog and get email subscribers. And so I think it's just fun to be an innovator, you know, and I think you got to know where your own future is and you got to know where the future of your industry is going. I want to give a huge thank you to Dr. Ben Hardy for taking the time to speak with me today. You know, what particularly resonated for me was that if you're serious about creating the future you want, you're required to make a shift in how you see things. Also, according to Dr. Ben Hardy, all behavior is goal driven. And the more clear you can be on your goals, the more meaningful your results will be. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Dr. Ben Hardy, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time when we'll be speaking to social media marketing genius, Billy Jean, about how to stay relevant in the digital age and the exponential value of creating opportunities for those around you. We'll think of an idea, film it the same day, put it out the same day, spend a hundred bucks on it and know if it works in the same day. So think about that. If it's taking, if I can test a new ad every single day, that gives me 30 shots a month versus other people who it's giving them one shot in 30 days. Who's going to win? Like you just, you can't even compete with it. You can't even compete with it. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Oh, 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 o